I can't wait to preach this message, which is why it's so funny that I can't move on, because I'm really looking forward to bringing this message to you, uh, because we're returning to our main series uh, that we've been doing over the last year or so, and that is on the kingdom of God. We were doing it this time last year, up until the summer, and uh, we're going to return to that uh, for now, and we're working through the book of Matthew. And the kingdom of God is probably, it is actually the most important message of the New Testament. The most important message. Uh, a, a few years ago, uh, I, I feel like this isn't just sort of a biblical thing, but a prophetic thing, because a few years ago I felt God say to me that the time of the restoration of the church is now over, that's happened, but now it's about the restoration of the kingdom of God. It seems like we've got very focused on the church over the last few years, and that's been God. He's been saying, look, you need to look at some things like spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit, which has been neglected in previous generations. But now you've got to start focusing on the kingdom because actually Jesus builds the church and we advance the kingdom. And so there's a, a focus that I believe that God wants us to have. I think it's going to be one of our key messages and our emphasis as a church, the kingdom of God. Um, now in the New Testament, I said that it's mentioned a lot. Well, here's how many times in the first three gospel, uh, first three gospels, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God over a hundred times. That's a lot of times. In the rest of the New Testament, it comes through 30 more times. 130 times in the New Testament, this theme uh, repeats. So it's important. It's an important emphasis. It's so important, actually, that Jesus says, I want you to seek first my kingdom. Put that in priority. That comes before everything else over food, over clothing, over material needs. Put that first. Put the kingdom first. And you know that what you put first affects everything else. Try putting your trousers on, you know. If you put your... Have you noticed this about men, okay? They they often... <laughs> how many men put their trousers on first when you get up in the morning? It affects everything else because actually then you put your shirt on. You've got to undo your trousers, which you've already done up, because you've got to tuck your shirt in. How many of us do that day after day after day? I suddenly had a revelation about this. So I've started putting my shirt on first, and it's quicker. It's easier. Anyway, that's completely irrelevant. But Jesus says we are to prioritize the kingdom over everything else. So I think trousers. Prioritize the kingdom over everything else. We're to prioritize it. We're to teach the kingdom. We're to demonstrate the kingdom. And we're to pray about it. Actually, Jesus said, now that's just enough laughing. It wasn't that funny. Jesus says, every time you pray, say, let your kingdom come. Every time you pray, that's prioritizing. That's putting it first. So I guess it must have been pretty important to Jesus. The kingdom of God was all that Jesus talked about those 40 days after the resurrection when he met with his disciples. And if you're about to die, if you're about to be translated, if you're about to leave a group of people that you love a lot then you are going to prioritize what you say to them. And Jesus did. He prioritized talking about the kingdom. 
The Apostle Paul did the same. The disciples did the same. Everywhere they went, it says, they declared the kingdom. So the kingdom of God and the extension of his kingdom must be our emphasis too. So very intentionally, we want to keep talking about, preaching about, teaching into and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Is that okay with you? I am excited about that. The power of the kingdom of God invading earth is what it's all about. We expect miracles to break out. We expect lives to be transformed. We expect communities to be transformed because of the kingdom of God advancing. Amen? So far in this series, we've looked at three aspects of the kingdom. And I just want to remind you very quickly of what we've covered so far. All of the talks are on the website that you can catch up on. But let me just refresh you. Firstly, we looked at kingdom warfare. And we did a version of the Christmas story that I don't think any of us will ever forget. Because actually that was the most provocative thing that God has ever done in starting the war with the kingdom of darkness, sending Jesus. God's kingdom has come in Jesus, but now it has to be advanced to extend God's rule and reign in the face of the kingdom of darkness, which resists us, but light always overcomes darkness. Secondly, we looked at kingdom culture. We spent quite a lot of time on creating the culture of the kingdom. Jesus' manifesto at the beginning of Matthew 5 called the Beatitudes is where Jesus sets out what it's like to be a part of the kingdom. He says it's a place where the poor are blessed and where the meek inherit the earth, showing a very different kingdom to that which we see on earth. We then spent several weeks looking at our own culture as a church, and we summarized our own reflection of the culture of heaven here on earth in Jubilee. And we said, these are the five words that we're going to use to build our culture with as a church. We're going to, we talked about honor. We talked about authenticity. We talked about passion, family, and courage, which is these things affect how we do church together, how we relate together. And then finally, just before the summer, we looked at kingdom influence. We looked at salt and light. We saw how the way that as we live as individuals and together as a church, impacts the culture around us and reveals the Father to those that are in darkness. And we're going to come back to that uh, particular theme, kingdom influence, again and again throughout this series as we look at chapter 8 and several other places because this is a pattern that repeats throughout. Jesus never just teaches something and then leaves you with it. He teaches it and then he demonstrates it. And then it influences and changes the culture around you. So we're going to look at that again, which all leads us to this next part of our series, which is about living out the culture of the kingdom in kingdom living. And so I want to just simply introduce this series to you. It's going to take us from Matthew 5:17 all the way to the end of Matthew 7. And we're going to do that in about 19 weeks. and i am excited about that 19 weeks on kingdom living and i'm going to be sharing this series with chris and and with simon clay and we're going to do the majority of the teaching but others are going to contribute as well isn't that amazing 
So turn to Matthew 5, 17 to, 19, 17 to 20, although it will come up on the screen. And I just want to read these four verses to you, which will give us the keys to understanding the rest of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. I've actually not got my Bible with me. I am so bad today. I don't know what's going on with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. So these four verses are the keys to interpreting the whole of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus teaches over and over again, what we're going to look at today. So we need to get this clear in our minds. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father God, I just pray that you'd breathe revelation on these verses. Would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts? Lord, would your presence just rest on us right now as I speak into this chapter? Help us to grasp this for your glory and for your name's sake. Amen. Okay, so I want to give you three keys to kingdom living from this passage. And the first one is this, that kingdom living is about what Jesus has already done. This is exactly where Jesus starts in the passage that we've just read. Here's my version of this passage Jesus says, I don't want you to be under any illusion about why I'm here. So let me spell it out for you. I am the very embodiment, the complete fulfillment of the law and the one of whom the prophets talked about. Jesus says, it's all been done. You no longer need to perform. I've done it all for you. Your sin before God is no longer a problem. Your inability to obey the law is no longer a problem. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation. Because you see, kingdom living is a place of freedom from all of that, (laughs) which I think is good news. It's good news. It's a bit like the exam that you were due to take and work so hard for. Well, somebody else has already taken it, got a 100% grade in your name. Wouldn't that be wonderful if somebody did that for you? Completely legitimately, that exam that's been passed, it's already done. It's in my name. It's like the long journey that you started on. You fell asleep on the back seat of your parents' car and you wake up and find yourself there already. Isn't that a wonderful feeling? You're already there. It's like the washing up from the dinner party of the night before... You wake up the next morning and you find somebody's already done it. It's all done. It's like the bill that you've been dreading to pay after Christmas. You find that somehow, miraculously, it's already been cancelled. 
that's what it's like. Jesus says, I've already done it. I mean, this is good news. It's good news for us. It's already been done. Jesus has already done it. He's fulfilled the law. But can you imagine what good news it would have been for his hearers? I don't think we understand the significance of what these words meant to Jesus' hearers at the time. Just think about it. A bit of history, a bit of history lesson right now. 400 years. 400 years of silence. That's what Jesus was speaking into. This message had come to the people on the back of 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There had been no fresh revelation. There had been no word from God. No prophets had come. No judges had come. No kings. No messages of encouragement or consolation. I can't even imagine what that would be like. 400 years. Where is God? But religion had thrived. Religion had thrived. It always does in the vacuum of man's own attempts to get to God. Judaism and various other isms had arisen. You know, Judaism didn't uh, didn't exist in the Old Testament. It was man's invention between that period. It was... It was human beings trying to please God by organizing rules and regulations, some to moderate, some to defend, some to interpret the law of God with all kinds of other elaborate rules and regulations that didn't help at all. It actually just made things worse and weighed people down even more. I mean, think the law with level upon level of meaningless bureaucracy and red tape. That's what it was all about. That's what Judaism is all about. Bureaucracy and red tape. And then comes Jesus. Jesus speaks, a a man with authority, where he says time and time again, the law says this, but I say to you. They'd never heard anybody speak like that in their own authority. The Pharisees didn't do that. They merely tried to extrapolate to, to try and work out systems and ways of understanding the law of God, Jesus steps in and with one powerful declaration sweeps it all aside and says, I have fulfilled them all. It's all been done, meaning the law of God, the first five books of the Old Testament and every nuance of God's law, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of it too. All done, fulfilled. Jesus goes on in verse 18 to expand and to say that not even the smallest letter, not even the punctuation marks of the law, not even a single stroke of the pen have been missed out. He's filled it up. He's filled it up with his life and his righteousness. It's all been done. Did you know that? Did you know that it's all been done? That there's nothing more for you to do to please God. There's no effort required. There's no works. There's no attempts needed to make yourself more acceptable to God than what Jesus has already done. Nothing. And when Jesus said from the cross, he, he was there in his agony and he cried out, it is finished. He really meant it. It's all been done. In fact, there is only one thing that we need to do. 
only one thing that we need to do, and that is to believe it. All we have to do is believe it. Jesus says it's done. I believe it. Done. Must be more complicated than that. There must be some rules and regulations. No. It's all been done. Just believe it. You see, kingdom living is about the grace of God. It's, it's a gift. That's what the word grace means. It means a gift from heaven to you. Jesus has done everything for us. That's the gift. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, verse 19, Therefore, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Any great people here today? (laughs) Oh, I see. We put our hands up quietly. That was just a practice run. For those listening on the internet, we were just practicing. Are there any great people here today? Some of you look a little more convinced. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore, in the light of what Jesus has already done, the therefore looks back to what Jesus said. Not therefore forward, therefore whoever is the least. Therefore, in light of what Jesus has already done, the fulfillment of Christ, why would you need to compromise? Therefore, in the light of what Jesus said, why would you need to compromise? Why would the fear of the law... Or, okay, put it into our language today, your failings. Why would you need to be afraid anymore in the light of what Jesus has already done? The failings in your life. If Jesus has done everything that's needed to make us acceptable to God, then why do we need to worry? Why would we need to compromise or to justify ourselves or to explain ourselves or to find some other way of looking at these high commands? Of God, if Jesus has already done it. See, as believers, it's not like the law of God is now abolished or set aside. Jesus didn't come to do this. Sometimes when you talk to Christians, you you get the impression that they think, oh, the law's got nothing to do with us anymore. Well, in one sense, that's right, but in another sense, it's not. The law still applies, it's just that Jesus has fulfilled it, and we rest in the good of that. But we still need to understand it. The law hasn't been abolished, it's been fulfilled. So our relationship, it's not that it's been abolished or set aside, but our relationship with the law changes. So that we no no longer have to avoid or to minimize the harder laws of God, but instead we can embrace them all And see them as opportunities to become more like Jesus. It's not that they've been set aside. It's just that our relationship has changed towards them. So the next point I want to make is that kingdom living is a heart matter. It's about the heart. See, the essential truth about the law of God is that it reveals the true condition of our hearts, which is why we don't like it. 
It reveals the true condition of our hearts. You know, that's the place from where all decisions and motivations are truly made, which then comes out in our behavior and the way that we live. It reveals the truth of where we're at. That's what the law does. I mean, parents can quite easily see this in action when they attempt to discipline their children. You know, the true heart and the nature of the child can be revealed quite simply by saying one magic word, no. All you've got to do is say to a child, no, and you get to see what their heart is really like. Yeah? And it's the same with us. Now, that's what the law of God does to us. It says no. And the reaction is felt and comes from our hearts. So now if our hearts, if our hearts have been renewed, the reaction is one of conviction leading to revelation. So we change or at least we have the potential to change. We see where we've fallen short. We are convicted and we have the potential to change. That's why God shows it to us. See, if we have conviction without revelation, what happens? Condemnation. It ties us up. But Jesus doesn't want conviction without revelation. He wants conviction with revelation. So, right. Okay, I get it. That's the way it can be then. It opens something up for us. There is no condemnation, you see, for those who are in Christ. From that position... It's not condemnation, but revelation that we get from the law. I thought that was a good point. Because you see, in Christ, we have a new nature. Did you know that? Have you found that actually inside you want to please God? I don't enjoy sin like I used to. I actually want to please God. There's something inside me that I can't change. I want to please God. That's called the new nature. It doesn't exist in the heart of the unbeliever. I want to be like him. I want to teach other people to to be the same. This law becomes a revelation to us, firstly, of what Jesus has already done, therefore, And secondly, a revelation of all that we can be in Christ. Of course, if we're not yet believers and our hearts haven't been renewed, our reaction to the law will be more like, how dare you tell me what to do? Who do you think you are? You have no right to say that to me. I am my own man and I can do what I want when I want. I can do just what I like. The heart of the unbeliever responds like that. But you see, the law speaks right into the heart and none of us can stand up to its high moral standards without Christ. But so many of us, even as believers, forget the grace of God, forget what he's done and still try to do it by ourselves. We create our own law. Are you following me? So, for example, take one of the harder commands. I think this one's a hard one. Here we go. You ready for this? I'm going to give it to you straight. The command of God that's in the New Testament is be holy as I am holy. Now, if you think about what that means, that means be like God because he's the only one that's holy. Okay, be holy as I am holy. Be like me. 
Be like God. Now, anybody struggle with that one? Anybody see a problem with that one? You know, we've only got to look at our lives and decide that the only way to deal with that command is somehow we've got to compromise. Somehow that needs to be watered down or put in its place or explained in some kind of theological clever way. Perhaps we'll just lean towards Romans 7. That's a good one, but it's taken out of context. Don't start me on that. (laughs) The command, face it, full in the face. Be holy as I am holy. That's the command. But we try and create other ways of dealing with it. Here we go. I'll create a system of rules. Pray. Pray a lot so that I can be holy. Pray that I can be holy. Read the Bible. If I haven't read my Bible today, I'm in trouble. I can't be holy. Go to church. Every single meeting. Don't miss a single one. You start to create levels of rules to be holy. Don't look there. Don't look here. Don't look anywhere. Don't watch TV. You might be tempted. Don't go out on the street. You might see a billboard. Don't go to work. There's people there that can tempt you. In fact, don't do anything. Just stay at home. No, even better, go to a monastery. Just forget everything. Forget the world. And somehow I'm going to be holy. Can you see what we do? It doesn't work. Even if you did all of that, you'd still not be holy. In fact, you'd probably get proud. (laughs) So what do we do? How can we obey this command? Well, in the light of what Jesus has already done, and in the spirit of revelation, we can look directly into the full force of the law of God is holy. And with all humility and great thankfulness say, OK, God, if that's what you say, that's what I am. And that's who I will be because you have said it. You be holy as I'm holy. I unlock that revelation. I receive that. Lord, do you know about the stuff that still needs working through? But I'm going to take this and I'm going to start to act in that way and start to believe that because he says that I'm holy, I'm going to be holy because he says it. But it's not from my own efforts because nothing I could do could ever make me holy. Believe me, ask my wife. (laughs) We start to live differently in the light of the revelation of Christ. And it goes right to the heart. See, I don't think this is a message just for the Pharisees and the lawyers. We all need to hear this. Don't put the law aside. Don't try and water it down. See the full extent of God's high moral requirements and respond from the heart. Yes, Lord. That's how much I need Jesus. And when you think about the holiness of God, I need Jesus a lot. I need that Savior more than all of you, Paul said. Because he said to me, be holy as I'm holy. And that's not possible without Jesus. Feel it, though. Feel it deeply. Feel it and acknowledge it. The revelation of the law of God, but not from the position of who I am now in me, but who I am seated in Christ. From that place, because actually viewed from the position, our position in Christ, it actually unlocks our own potential for righteous kingdom living. 
you realize the full extent of what Jesus has done and how this can completely and utterly revolutionize our lives? You see, compromise not only lessens you, as Jesus says, it makes you the least in the kingdom of heaven. Not only lessens you, it also lessens the work of Christ. Because actually what you're saying when you try and do it in your own strength and in your own way is that the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough for me. So I better have a go myself. Did you realize how serious that was? Because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Legalism is an offense to God. Because it says Jesus wasn't up to the job. So have you been trying to live up to God's holy standards in your own strength? You'll never live the kingdom life like this. You can't. Why would you want to? You need to accept the gift of Jesus' completed work and be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven not because of anything that we have done, but because of all that he is. So what's the next heading then? Can you guess? Kingdom living is all about our identity. And this verse that we're going to look at now, verse 20, is the key verse, I believe, for the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, because this thought is repeated over and over again by Jesus And it goes like this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious elite, you're not going to get into heaven. I mean, that's pretty serious, isn't it? I mean, your reaction to this and your understanding of this verse affects your eternal destiny. Just make it absolutely plain. That's what we're talking about right now. You've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Righteousness that surpasses it. I mean, let's just understand, first of all, in context, how hard this was for the disciples to hear. So if we'd been around in the time of Jesus, we would have held these men in very high regard. I mean, we like to sort of talk about the Pharisees in a dismissive kind of way now from the safety of 2,000 years away. But if we'd been around them, we would have been very frightened of them. We would have held them in high regard. These these men were awesome men. They were powerful men. Depending on what they thought would depend whether you were part of the community or not. And being part of the community meant food and shelter and all this kind of thing. These were an awesome group of men. They were the religious elite. They were highly trained. They were deeply committed, often from childhood trained up in the ways of the Lord from childhood. They, and I, they were, for the greater part, I'm sure, devoted men who, who sincerely lived in the fear of God, and they knew their Bibles better than any of us. These, these are not sort of weak-kneed, irrelevant people we're talking about here. So I want you to see that in Jesus saying this to his disciples, your righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees, it would have been an impossible thing for them. It would have just blown their minds, the thought of it. 
It would be like me, for example, challenging Usain Bolt to a running a race around Tudor Grange Park and expecting me to win. You know? That, that's how, that's how far out of their league they were. It'd be like Steve Wicking calling Mike Tyson a wimp to his face, <laughs> expecting to survive long enough to flatten him or run one or the other. I mean, it, it's just impossible. It would be like Trev being asked to check a paper for Professor Stephen Hawkins and making some valuable suggestions. <laughs> well, actually, in Trev's case, that's a possibility. <laughs> but can you see, I, I mean, these men are just out of our league. We, we can't even step into the ball game. The bar is way too high for us. And it was the same for the disciples. The, these men were... Largely a bunch of uneducated manual workers. The Pharisees were public school and all the rest. Uh, they, they were in another league of righteousness. But if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness is going to surpass that. I mean, how can this be unless Jesus didn't really mean it when he said, uh, the poor in spirit will be given heaven? He didn't really mean it. He was just saying it to be nice. Or he didn't really mean it when he said those who are meek would inherit the earth. He was just trying to make them feel better. Or he didn't really mean it when he said the pure in heart will see God. No, he actually meant the religious elite. Of course. Well, if he had meant that, that's what he would have said. Be like the Pharisees. Actually, what he said is your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. The religious elite. So this can't be what Jesus meant, which is why kingdom living is not about doing better, but being better. Jesus, in comparing the righteousness of the Pharisees, was talking about a type of righteousness which isn't righteousness at all in God's eyes. The Pharisees were externally the most righteous of men. They had religious observance down to a fine heart. They, they even talked about tithing down to the smallest amount that they owned. They lived scrupulously and were proud of it. Oops. Back to that holy thing again. But to be righteous in the eyes of God is not just about the outward appearance and religious observance. It's not about that, actually. It's about being a better person. It's, about, it's actually even more than that. It's about being a new person, having a new identity, starting all over again. Being the person that never did the sin in the first place is the only way to get into that kind of righteousness. And so Paul says this. He writes it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation where the old has gone and the new has come. This is the only place that we can truly be righteous in Christ. It's the only place we can actually be right with God, covered in Christ, where our whole lives are hidden in Christ, where we are literally born again, literally, spiritually. We've got a new identity. We're born again and we become a new person before there can be any change of condition, you see, there needs to be a change of position so that we're no longer citizens of earth, but we're citizens of heaven seated with Christ. Amen? Yeah. Not only that, we are to be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. 
translated not by our own works or the sweat of our own brow, but God himself does that. He places us in Christ. Nothing that we need to do other than what I said earlier, you've got to believe it. And then God does the work for us. And then we're called righteous in Christ, rightly related to God, not because of my works, but because of what Jesus has done. Royal sons adopted into his family, living in his kingdom by relationship with the king. You see, because essentially kingdom living is about living the life of the king. Deeply connected to him, totally dependent upon him, because it's all about Jesus. Is that where you are? Are you a new person? Have you got your identity papers from heaven? Are you part of God's royal family? It's the only way you can be right with God. Righteous. And that means that you're qualified for the kingdom. You will go to heaven when you die. In fact, you go to heaven right now. You start to live with Christ in heavenly places and your life completely and radically changes. You will never be the same again. Is that what you have? Did you need reminding today? Positioned in Christ. Changing us from the inside out. From glory to glory. If you think about it, being changed from glory to glory must mean there was some glory in the first place. Change from glory to glory. Each one of us is in the glory of God because we're in Christ and we're being changed from glory into glory. So there you go, three keys to kingdom living from the passage. Number one, it's about what Jesus has already done. Number two, it's about the heart. Number three, it's all about a change of identity. And Jesus says that it's all been done. I want to just take any weight of you need to perform off you right now and set you free with truth. There's nothing that you need to do to make yourself any more acceptable to God than what you are right now. All you've got to do is believe. Your sin before God is no longer a problem, no matter how bad, no matter how long ago it was. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for anyone that's in Christ. You are free from that. I just declare that over you now. If you needed to hear that right now, I just declare it over you now. No condemnation, no guilt. It's gone in Jesus' name. That's truth. I'm just quoting the Bible. (laughs) Do you believe this? Are you a believer? And this isn't about religion, you see. It's about Jesus because religion is rules. None of us can keep the rules. We always fail the rules. Or if we don't fail the rules themselves, we, we fail the spirit of what was intended in the rules. Somehow we, we get caught. Yeah? Are you a believer today? You can be. All you have to do is accept what Jesus says. I've done it all. That's it. If you want to be a believer today, that's all you have to believe. I've done it all. I've made, I've done everything that's made it possible for you to be right with God. I've done it. 
It's done. Do you believe me? Jesus is saying, do you believe me? (laughs) Yes, I do. Okay, well, you can be part of my kingdom then. (laughs) That's the simplicity of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, we no longer need to fear the law. And guys, let me just say, English people who I love with all of my heart, you don't need to fear failure either. You don't need to fear failure. We, we do. We fear failure. There's the standard I've, our whole exam system, our whole education system works that way. But the kingdom of heaven isn't like that. <laughs> he says, I've made it as low as possible for you all to come in. Can you get in over that? Look, I'm just saying, will you believe me when I say I've done it all? Okay, you can come in. Let me help you. <laughs> He's a shepherd. He comes looking for his sheep. Are you a, a lost sheep? I heard a bar. (laughs) And the other thing I just want to leave with you is this challenge that the law of God, his high moral standards that we all know, it's built into us actually. If you don't know the first five books of Moses, it's okay because we have a conscience. We all know. Let me just say this to you that when you see how far you have fallen and how far removed you are from God's moral standards, will you allow that to unlock for you the spirit of revelation instead of the work of the enemy, which is condemnation? Because when you see in that moment how far you've fallen, it just shows you how much you needed Jesus in the first place, and it sends you right back to him. That's what we want. I've gone completely off my script, and I have no idea what the time is, but I think we need to finish. But there is only one way, folks, to get into heaven, in Christ. In Christ. You cannot work for it. You cannot be disciplined enough to to do it, to do all the religious duties that you need to. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have been commended by Jesus instead of him saying we need to be more righteous than them. I just feel like God wants to release us from burdens of law and regulation and the heaviness that we put on ourselves because kingdom living is not about that at all. It's about living the life of the king. Amen.